0: You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. I'm Cities Church, Pastor David here. As you know, we record these sermons on Fridays here during the pandemic to have them ready for the household liturgies. And uh, such is the nature of life. There's a bobcat going on outside. There's, there's camps here at the church in the morning and afternoon. So we've got this little window during the lunch hour on Friday to record. And there's a bobcat just going to town out here. So I'm sorry, there's gonna be some background noise. Wanted to let you know that ahead of time. But we're, we're plowing ahead, <laughs> such, is, such is life and such are these days. So uh, let's pray together. Father in heaven, would you help us in these moments, um, in these, these strange times that we're in in 2020, Uh, Would you give us grace? Would you keep us going? Would you meet us in our fatigue? Meet us in our fears? Meet us in the threats, the anxieties? Uh, Would you give us grace from your word? And would you minister to us through these ancient inspired words from King David in Psalm 34? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Imagine a day in which Christians are being increasingly marginalized in their society they're not yet being physically persecuted but wherever they turn they're being insulted they're being maligned they're being regularly slandered and the vitriol seems to be growing and among the influential in society christianity is not trending if anything christianity is being increasingly blamed for various problems perceived in the in the society such is not only a fitting description of our generation, but also two millennia ago for the early church. And the apostle Peter wrote to embattled believers in very similar circumstances in the letter of 1 Peter. They were not just being physically persecuted, not yet. They were facing the world's disapproval in insults, in slander, in cold shoulders, in spoken vitriol. And where did Peter turn when he set his heart and mind to write encouragement to these embattled believers? He turned to Psalm 34, which is our text for this weekend. Twice, 1 Peter quotes Psalm 34 explicitly, briefly in chapter two, verse three, and then more extensively in chapter three, verses 10 to 12 which leads some pastors and scholars to think that Peter may have meditated at length on Psalm 34 as he prepared to write his letter to these early Christians in their, in their sufferings. And it makes sense because the key link between Peter's day and our day in Psalm 34 is verse 19. It's maybe the most important single verse in Psalm 34. Verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all." That's what we're gonna talk about here this morning. And seeing how Peter uses Psalm 34, I think really helps us see the richness of what King David is doing in this Psalm. As Peter saw, Psalm 34 prepares us for our suffering, prepares us for affliction. It is not only a call to celebrate with David that he was delivered from affliction, But as we celebrate with him, we also prepare ourselves for our own afflictions, whether those afflictions are already on us or whether those afflictions are coming. And we see it in the very first verse of Psalm 34. Look at verse one. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. So why would David say at all times? Because... There are times when praising the Lord might seem unusual, or at least unexpected. Times when we assume that praise might cease. And what times would those be? Those would be hard times. Times of affliction. And yet David, having come through such an affliction, he says to us, "...I will bless the Lord at all times." not just the good times, not just the times of rescue, at all times in the afflictions, not just the good times when praise is easy, not just when all seems right with the world, not just those times, but at all times, when under threat, when it's hard, when life is uncertain, when it's painful, when I'm impatient and I just want the pandemic to be over and get back to normal life and it goes on and on and on, then at that moment, in the downs of life, in the trials, in the pains, in affliction, there's the all times that David is talking about in verse 1 and throughout Psalm 34. So that's the context in which we should read verse 8 of Psalm 34, which we all love. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. When 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 3 alludes to Psalm 34:8, he says, to his readers, embattled as they are, if you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And when he does this, what Peter is appealing to is their experience in affliction. The very thing that David calls us to in Psalm 34, to taste and see in affliction, taste and see in bad times that the Lord is good. In other words, trust him against all odds when you're backed in a corner. Lean on him, rest in him. When there seems to be no way out, When things are bad, taste and see that the Lord is good. That's the context of verse 8. So with help from the Apostle Peter on how to read Psalm 34, let's consider four truths from this psalm for our generation and in particular for us in these days of affliction of their various sorts in this pandemic. So number one, God's people will suffer. This is verses 19 to 22. This really is the apex, the culmination of the psalm. David says it straight in verses 19 to 22. That's his main point. Number one, God's people will suffer. So let's look first at the first part of verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. And let that statement have its effect. Don't nope, let it pass by too quickly. Jesus said to his followers in John sixteen thirty-three. In this world, you will have tribulation. And the Apostle Paul, he went around to his church plants, little baby churches. And one of the first things he taught them, one of the basics of the faith, Acts 14, 22, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And to the Thessalonians, Paul writes about their afflictions. He says, you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, when Paul was planting the church, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction. This is Paul's message to baby Christians. We're gonna tell you this beforehand, and we're gonna keep telling you we will suffer affliction. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Being God's people, being the righteous, is no promise of earthly ease. In fact, it actually comes with a promise of affliction. And not just some, but many, Many are the afflictions of the righteous. So we might say, well, that's pretty poor treatment by an all-powerful God towards his people. Why would I want to be his? Why bother being righteous? And verses 21 and 22 make clear that affliction in our lives serves two contrasting purposes, for the righteous, for the wicked, for God's people, for his enemies, Look at verses 21 and 22, affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. So affliction ruins the wicked. It is the end of their story, but affliction makes the righteous. It is not their end. It reveals their true colors. It has a humbling effect rather than a hardening effect. Affliction has a purifying effect for the righteous, even while it has a punitive effect for the wicked. The wicked will be condemned at the final judgment. The righteous, though afflicted and through affliction, will not be condemned, but the Lord himself will redeem their life. More about that in just a few minutes but we need to ask more about who are the righteous here in this psalm? Who are the the righteous of verse 15 and the servants of verse 22 and the saints of verse 9? Because I want to be in that number, (laughs) don't you? I I want to be among the servants, among the righteous, among the saints. And Psalm 34 tells us far more about God's people than that they are righteous, but also what makes them to be the righteous. Verse two, they are humble. Let the humble hear and be glad. Verse five, they are those who look to the Lord. That's the general way of saying it, they look to him. What does that mean? Verses seven and nine say they are those who fear him. Verses eight and 22 say they are those who take refuge in him. So the way that they look to him, here's how they look to him. They look to him in fear. And it's the kind of fear that doesn't run from him, but takes refuge in him. That's the kind of fear, that's the kind of looking that the righteous do to God. Verse 10, they are those who seek him. That's another way to say it. Verse 14, they turn away from evil and they do good. More on that in a minute. In verse 18, he calls them broken-hearted and crushed in spirit, which we should note here. He doesn't say that the righteous are unbroken and uncrushed. Rather, they have been broken. They have been crushed. They've been humbled, and these are God's people. So, as the whole psalm implies, and as verse 19 makes explicit, God's people will suffer. This is one of the basic 101 lessons of the Christian life. The afflictions of the righteous are many. Cities Church, we take this with utter seriousness. We do not pretend that Christianity frees us from afflictions in this world. In fact, we assume that it brings more, not less, for now. Many afflictions. And so Peter tells his readers in 1 Peter 4, verse 1, arm yourselves with this same way of thinking. Afflictions are coming. And he says in 1 Peter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. We told you this ahead of time. We kept telling you, expect it. Prepare yourself for it. So, Cities Church, let's be armed with this way of thinking. Let's not be surprised. Let's be ready to taste and see in bad times that the Lord is good. So, number one, God's people will suffer. Number two, God's people do good while they wait. This is verses, eight, this is verses 11 to 18. God's people do good while they wait. My kids have been watching uh, some Aladdin during the pandemic, and God is not like the genie of the lamp who fulfills wishes at the moment when they ask. Rather, He is God Almighty. He rules the universe without our counsel. He freely chooses to rescue the righteous and he chooses to do so on his timetable, not ours. So verses 11 to 18 provide a dual clarification for the righteous in their many afflictions. So first, here's the first clarification. The promise of divine rescue is not a promise of immediate rescue. Waiting in affliction is part of what makes it affliction. The pandemic would not have been much affliction if it was one afternoon of being inside. Part of the waiting is part of the affliction. God means for his people to endure in suffering that doesn't go away right away. And 1 Peter is explicit about this element of God's timing. At least three times in 1 Peter. 1 Peter 1.6, Now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Meaning, these trials are longer than you want. And yet, in view of eternity... They're a little while, as painfully long as they are. First Peter 5.6, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time, you humble yourself and you wait, and then at the proper time, he may exalt you. And then 1 Peter 5.10, after you have suffered a little while, meaning perhaps the rest of this life, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore confirm, strengthen, establish you? So the first clarification is, the promise of divine rescue is not a promise of immediate rescue. The second clarification is, that affliction and suffering are no excuse for evil. Rather, as we wait for God's rescue, Psalm 34 calls us to do good. Psalm 34 has, has two big parts. Verses 1 to 10 are the call to worship and testimony time. I cried for help. God rescued me. Rejoice with me. Then verses 11 to 22 are like the teaching time. This is where David is sharing lessons. And verse 11 calls us into this new section. He says, come, oh children, listen to me. He's a wisdom teacher here. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. And then David appeals to us. He appeals to our desire for life when there's threats on our life, and for many days, when our days seem to be few, and to see good when we're facing evil. And he says, what does he say at that point? He say find your way to cope. Enjoy your major league baseball, your NBA, your college football as a way of getting through the affliction, lament, grumble. Be authentic and air your grievances with God. This is what he says in verses 13 and 14. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. In other words, the pains of affliction are no excuse for evil. The affliction of a pandemic or unjust treatment at work or childhood trauma or being insulted because of your faith, is no reason for God's people to act like the devils. Affliction is no excuse for gossip, or slander, or sinful anxiety, or sinful anger, or spiritual apathy. In fact, affliction is a call to God's people for precisely the opposite. A pandemic is no sign from God that we're on a break and you have an excuse to be spiritually slack. Rather, affliction rings in the ears of the righteous as a call to do good all the more, to keep our tongues from evil and to keep our hearts from unbelief. Affliction for the Christian is game time. Will our lights really shine and give glory to our Father in heaven or not? So not only do the righteous see many afflictions and wait in those afflictions, but they do good while they wait. The righteous in their afflictions are righteous. The righteous, when threatened, are righteous. And this emphasis in Psalm 34 on doing good while we wait is what prompts Peter to reach for this Psalm to encourage his readers. He wants to apply Psalm 34 to them right here. He says to insulted, ill-treated Christians, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. That's 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. And then in 1 Peter chapter 3, when he quotes Psalm 34, verses 12 to 16, He does so as support for saying, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. In other words, do good, for this is what you were called to. Where were you called to do that? Psalm 34, that you may obtain a blessing. That's 1 Peter 3.10. So King David says to his people, and Peter says to his, and now this Psalm and 1 Peter both say to us, affliction is. Is no excuse for sin. In fact, affliction is a fresh call to do good. A question for all of us here in this moment is: what good are we doing as we wait in the affliction? This is pandemic, or whatever affliction you're facing, that may be more acute than the pandemic. Have you let this affliction become an excuse? or a cause for sin or spiritual apathy? Are you doing good for others while you wait? And let's just say perhaps we're at the halfway point of the pandemic. Who knows? Maybe it's halftime. And Psalm 34 is our is our halftime speech. Have we done good rather than evil in these days as we've waited? And what, God might, what might God be calling us to in the second half, in these weeks ahead, in these months ahead, in our fatigue as this affliction drags on? So number one, the righteous will suffer. Um, number two, God's people do good while they wait. Number three, God rescues his people resoundingly. He rescues his people resoundingly. This is verse 20. Resoundingly, not barely, but fully and finally. And this is verse 20, but it also includes all the seemingly over-the-top language in this psalm. Did you, did you hear all the alls and the nuns as you read through Psalm 34? Listen to these. Verse 1, I will bless the Lord at all times. Verse 4, he delivered me from all my fears. Verse 5, their faces shall never be ashamed. Verse 6, saved from all troubles. Verse 9, those who fear him have no lack. Those who seek him, verse 10, have they lack no good thing. Verse 17, the Lord delivers the righteous out of all their troubles. Verse 19, he delivers them out of all their afflictions. And finally, verse 22, none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. So, delivered from all fears, all troubles all afflictions. And so we ask, does God always deliver the righteous? And the answer in Psalm 34 comes especially in verse 20 with one final all. Let me me start in verse 19, our main verse. Let's read verses 19 and 20 together and see the answer that David provides. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all, He keeps all his bones. None of them is broken. So that's the answer. You get it? Probably not, because verse 20 is the most obscure part of the psalm for us today, because we no longer attach a lot of symbolic significance to bones. But that's not the case biblically. There's all sorts of figurative meaning to bones in the Bible, depending on the context. So we not only hear about flesh and bone as a reference to the human body or to kinship, we not only hear about bones being buried, being the last remaining part of a body once the flesh has been consumed or rotted. Also seeing bones in the Bible through the skin of someone who's living is a sign of starvation, of sickness, of wasting away. Bones also refer to the deepest part of humans in a figurative sense, like Psalm 6:2, where David says, I am languishing, my bones are troubled. And in our studies of Genesis and Exodus, remember two strange mentions of bones. First, there are perhaps no more famous bones in all the Bible than the bones of Joseph. The book of Genesis ends, it's amazing, the first book of the Bible ends with the bones of Joseph as he makes Israel, the sons of Israel, to swear to bring up his bones from Egypt to the promised land when God delivers them. This is Genesis 50, 25. And when Israel does make its exodus, the pledge is fulfilled. We have a record of that, Exodus 13, 19. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from there. And then, not just Genesis, but the book of Joshua ends with the bones of Joseph. This is two of the first six of the bi- books of the Bible ending with the bones of Joseph. Joshua 24, 32. As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem in the piece of land that Joseph, that Jacob bought. So uh, the story of the bones is done. Finally, and in the New Testament, Hebrews celebrates this as a great act of faith. This is Hebrews chapter 11, verse 22. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. How is giving directions concerning his bones a great act of faith? In the very midst of this story about Joseph's bones from the end of Genesis into Exodus to the end of Joshua, in the very midst of it, just breaths before that mention of Joseph's bones at the beginning of Exodus 13, there is another mention of bones at the end of Exodus 12 and its instructions about the Passover lamb. This is Exodus 12, verse 46. It shall be eaten in one house, You shall not take any of the flesh outside, and you shall not break any of its bones. So there's something sacred here. It's not explained yet in Exodus chapter 12 about the bones. The picture is still incomplete at this point. And then eventually, in due course, we come to Ezekiel chapter 37. And Ezekiel there has a vision of a valley of dry bones. And the bones being the remaining part of bodies that once lived and are now dead. So the dry bones represent death on the one hand. But also, the bones represent that the the lives are not utterly devastated. They're not utterly gone. There's some hope. There are bones left. Something remains. The bones remain. And God tells Ezekiel to prophesy and flesh returns to the bones in this vision. And then breath returns to these restored bodies. And then an army of God's people is raised from the dead. It's a picture of what God is doing. In other words, intact bones, kept bones, unbroken bones represent the hope of resurrection. That God, in his perfect timing, will reassemble the bones, and restore the flesh, and give breath, and bring dry bones back to full life with resurrection power. So now we go back to Psalm 34. And God keeping the bones of the righteous. This is a promise of resurrection. God keeps the bones of the righteous to restore them. And note well, resurrection does not mean no death for the righteous. It doesn't mean no suffering. In fact, it requires death. You must first die to be brought back to life in resurrection. Just as deliverance does not mean no trouble, as we've seen throughout the psalm, there must first be trouble before you can be delivered from it. So Psalm 34 does not say that the righteous will not die. That they won't suffer in the flesh, that they won't die in the flesh, but it does promise that God will raise them. All their bones will be kept, which is figurative, not literal. Not one will be broken, he says. A righteous man may indeed have bones broken in the course of of this life. He may even die with broken bones. The point is that God will keep his bones, God will raise him, God will put him back together someday and give him flesh and restore breath and affliction in this life, even if it kills the righteous, will not defeat him in the end. The reason that Joseph cared about his bones is that he believed that God would raise him back to life someday. And the reason that God instructed the people not to break the bones of the Passover lamb is that one day God would raise the true Passover lamb back to life. And so John 19:36 reports, at the death of Jesus, these things took place that scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. And if we're tracking with the symbolic meaning of bones in the Bible, we can say at this point of John's gospel, right at chapter 19, Jesus is going to rise. He won't stay dead. God kept all his bones. What did God keep his bones for? To raise him. These unbroken bones of Jesus on the cross, they are a sign. They are a sign that God is keeping them and that God will raise them. So back to our, our alls and our nuns in Psalm 34. Does God always deliver the righteous? And the answer from Psalm 34 is a resounding yes with a little qualification. God does deliver the righteous from all their fears, from all their troubles, from all their afflictions. God will keep His bones, not even one will be broken, which means there will be fears, there will be troubles, there will be afflictions, even death, and there will be resurrection on the other side. And the qualification is, this is on God's timetable, not ours. We will be delivered, not precisely when we want in our flesh, but we will be delivered fully and finally in God's perfect timing. So City's Church, If we only knew in our afflictions, however severe, what a resounding rescue we have coming, we would be so much more ready to bear up under our momentary trials. So then we finish here with number four, fourth truth. God's people celebrate him together. This is verse three. In one sense, it's the whole of the first half of the Psalm, verses one to 10, but especially look at verse three. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Final question here as we end. What does it mean to magnify God? It does not mean to make him look bigger than he is. As if when we gather to sing praises, we make him look big when in fact he is small. That would be to magnify like a microscope. A microscope takes tiny objects and makes them look bigger so that we're able to see them with our weak human eyes. Rather, when we join our voices and our lives together in praise of our God, we magnify him like a telescope. Telescopes take massive objects that look small to our frail human eyes and make them look like more of what they are, which is enormous beyond our capacity to comprehend. That is more like the magnifying that we do when we gather in worship and the kind of magnifying of God that we do for each other and for our world through our words and through our lives. God is enormous beyond our capacity to comprehend. And he is glorious beyond our ability to fully appreciate. And he is powerful beyond our capacity to measure. But tragically, he often seems so small to our frail and fallen human eyes. And the problem's with us, not with him. We do not see him as he is. We need help. We need help from David and help from Peter and help from each other. And as we gather weekly in church for worship, we do that kind of magnification of God together in our praises. We remind each other of what's most real, what's most precious, what's most glorious. And in our lives and through our words, we want to magnify the truth and the beauty and the worth of all that God is for us in Christ to each other and to a world that does not see that reality as it should. And there's one last component here we can't overlook. In Psalm 34, David is not just reporting the facts. Psalm 34 is not a detached, objective report. David is celebrating. He is boiling over with joy. He has tasted God's goodness in bad times. He is happy. So he says in verse two, let the humble hear and be glad. He's glad, be glad with me. God is not so magnified by our words and by our lives when we simply report the truth as he is when we rejoice in him. When we are glad in him, he looks good like he should. When we celebrate him and his goodness to us and his goodness to all who look to him and fear him and seek him and take refuge in him, then he is magnified greatly. And especially when we taste and see that he is good in the midst of many afflictions. So let's pray together. Father in heaven, would you make the message of Psalm 34 and the message of 1 Peter to be true in our lives. In the many afflictions that we face. Some are so relatively mild and many are great. And so, Father, as your people, we want to be those who fear you, who come to you for our refuge, who seek you, who look to you for help. We do that now. And Father, we want you to be magnified in our lives. Would we taste and see your goodness in the most difficult, in the hardest, in the worst of times, and in these days ahead? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.